You're listening to Simple Roots Radio, episode 30, and it's all about sleep. Most people don't know that caffeine has a half-life of between six and eight hours, which means even though you might fall asleep while caffeine is on board, you're not going to get into the deeper stages of sleep. Welcome to Simple Roots Radio with Alexa Schoen. Alexa believes that simplicity in life is the key to achieving true and lasting health. A nutritionist by trade, Alexa has rebelled against common misconceptions about nutrition and has created a realistic health style that will allow you to live a healthy, satisfied, and more simplistic life. It's raw, it's real, it's unfiltered. It's Simple Roots Radio. And now your host, Alexa Sherr. Welcome back to this podcast. As always, I just wanted to remind you that this show is dedicated to simplifying your health, allowing you to live with more purpose, more joy, and ultimately achieve the lasting health you've been looking for. Today's episode gets to what could be the biggest issue facing our health today, and that's sleep. Yes, the very thing that so many of us wish for, a deep night's sleep. It's also a very controversial health topic with many, many statements attached to it, like how much sleep do we actually need and when we must do it. But what if sleep wasn't as rigid as the standards we place on it? What if there was a bigger picture, a picture that makes a good night's sleep seem more simple? On today's show, we have the leading natural sleep doctor, Dr. Michael Bruce, to break the myths and really get you sleeping well again. I am so excited to have him on as I have just always related really well to Dr. Bruce and the work that he does. It's kind of out of the ordinary, yet it's so simple and really just gets back to the flow of how our bodies are designed. And if you've been following along, you know that is exactly what I like. It may be the non-traditional approach, but it's finally the simple one. And Dr. Bruce is going to break that down for us on today's show. So in this episode, I'll be asking Dr. Bruce, do we really need eight hours of sleep? What is preventing us from getting that deep night's sleep? And of course, how to solve all of our sleeping problems, even digging into sleep apnea and insomnia and so much more. If you follow Dr. Bruce at all in the past, you know that this is going to be an awesome episode. If this is your first time learning about him, well, you're in for a real treat because he is packed with knowledge. So without further ado, here's Dr. Bruce. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bruce. I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, um, especially with your new book launch coming out. We'll talk about later in the show, but this is perfect timing for both of us. And I think it's fascinating, though, to start with by hearing people's story and how they developed into the person they are with such great passions. (laughs) So, Dr. Bruce, you went to medical school for clinical psychology. Actually, I went to graduate school for clinical psychology, but I ended up taking a medical specialty board um, without going to medical school, actually. So that was the kind of the crazy part. Okay. And then you ended up getting into sleep. Like, how did this yeah. all piece together? Like, how did you become fascinated with sleep? <laughs> so it was really bizarre because the um, internship program at the um, graduate school that I was going to, which uh, was actually the internship was in a medical center, um, they had an opening for a sleep specialist. And I had worked my way through graduate school running electrophysiology machines. So I knew how to take apart and put back together EEG and um, EKG and all those machines that monitor signals that come out of your body. And that's really what sleep uh, lab testing is about, is about monitoring all these signals. So I said, you know what, I can do that. And I volunteered. And lo and behold, 
um, I started a sleep rotation. And by day three, I had absolutely fallen in love with clinical sleep medicine. Um, you know, in most areas of psychology, it can take weeks, months, even years before you see treatment gains. And I can see things happen literally within 48 hours. It's, it's a real honor to have the opportunity to be able to work with patients and make that big of a difference in their lives. Um, plus, to be honest with you, sleep is kind of cool. You know, right. it's like if I was just a, you know, I don't know if I was a cardiologist, no offense to cardiologists out there, I probably wouldn't be nearly as much fun at a party as I am as a sleep doctor. Right. <laughs> you have a lot to talk about. <laughs> a I lot do. of icebreaker questions. Yeah. So there's a lot of misconceptions and misinformation when it comes to sleep. There's kind of like the set standard of eight hours in a dark room at the same time every day. Can you bust a few of those myths when it relates to sleep? I and can. and do we really need eight hours? So first of all, eight hours is a myth. Absolutely, positively. I am a six and a half hour sleeper, sometimes seven. That's the that's the amount of sleep that works best for me. Everybody's amount of sleep or their sleep need is actually individual. Mm -hmm. uh, many people don't realize that, but you know, the popular media has always said eight hours, eight hours, eight hours. And the truth of the matter is, is that comes from a study from back in the 40s, and it's not really particularly as accurate um, as we would have once thought it to be. Um, my wife, however, needs eight and a half. Mm -hmm. So if she got the six and a half that I did, she would be miserable. If I tried to get eight and a half, I would feel like a sloth all day long. So you really have to figure out kind of what works for you. And I teach people a little bit about that by discovering what your bedtime should be. Mm -hmm. So you want me to tell you how we do that? Yeah, because that kind of goes along. Is that the chronotyping that you'll talk about in it's your new book? Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly related, but one of the things that I tell people to do is, look, many people have a socially determined wake-up time. That might not be the time that's good for them from a biological standpoint, but hey, your kids are up, you got to get to work, something like that. What I tell people to do is since the average sleep cycle is approximately 90 minutes long and the average person has five of these sleep cycles, then five times 90 is 450 divided by 60 is seven and a half hours. So let's say that for whatever reason, you have to get up at 6.30. I want you to have lights out at 11. Mm -hmm. And here's what will happen is if, if you only need seven and a half hours, you should wake up naturally about three or four minutes before your alarm. Then guess what? You just figured out what your bedtime was. If you wake up an hour early, then guess what? You don't have to go to bed at 11. You can go to bed at 12. Um, if it takes a week or longer and you're still needing the alarm to wake up, then maybe you should go to bed a half an hour earlier. And you keep running the experiment with yourself to mm -hmm. sort of see – what my bedtime should be, because I don't know about you, but nobody's told me what time to go to bed since I was like 10. Right. <laughs> so speaking of that, though, obviously they say, you know, like mm -hmm. obviously infants need more sleep. So does our sleep patterns change as we age as adults? It does. Absolutely. So um, the timing of our sleep can change. And that's what my new book is all about, chronotypes. But the actual amount of sleep um, can change. Um, but there's, a, there's one other aspect that it's important for people to think through is it's not just about the quantity of sleep that you get, but it's also about the quality of the sleep that you get. And there's a lot of different things out there that can affect quality of sleep. Um, but one of the easiest things that people can do, and this is not a myth, is going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time every day, including the weekends. Um, I know that makes it hard for a lot of people out there, but a couple things to think through is it's really more the wake up time than the go to bed time. So if you want to go out Friday night to dinner and a movie or Saturday night, somebody's throwing a big birthday party and you're going to be out till 1230, one o'clock, that's fine. 
but you still got to get up at 6.30 or whatever your normal wake-up time is uh, within 20 to 30 minutes. Because if you go more than two days, you'll experience something that's now been uh, termed in the literature as social jet lag. So it's mm. kind of like this. You stay up late Friday and, you're, and you sleep in Saturday. You stay up late Saturday, you sleep in Sunday. I give you one guess what your body wants to do on Sunday night. Stay up late. Exactly. Um, and Monday morning, that's really where it gets kind of kooky because you just have no desire to wake up. Your whole circadian rhythm has shifted and it makes it really, really difficult. Right. I want to get into chronotyping, but before we get there, can you make mm-hmm. up sleep then? Like, is it possible if you wake up at the <laughs> same morning, can you make that up? So sleep is a lot like a baseball game. All right. So mm-hmm. if the game starts at eight o'clock, okay, and you show up at 930, the game doesn't restart. Right. Right. You're stuck at the third inning. The same holds true with sleep is your circadian rhythm starts your sleeping cycle, if you will, at a very particular time based on your own genetic nomenclature. And that's where chronotypes come in. Um, So if you show up late, meaning you stayed up past your bedtime, you're coming in at the third inning, which means you've missed the first three innings. What's really interesting about the analogy is approximately the first third of the night is when you get stage three and four sleep, which is your physically restorative sleep. Um, So this is kind of like bringing the car into the body shop and pulling out the dings and the scratches and things like that. This is when we know that um, cellular repair has a tendency to occur. We know this is when the largest amount of growth hormone is emitted. Uh, into the bloodstream. So when you're starting to think through sleep times and sort of what happens, it makes it kind of difficult. The, the, the other answer to your question, which is, well, maybe I could make up for it by sleeping in the next day. Right. Um, again, thinking about our baseball game analogy, you know, once the, the third out happens uh, at the end of the ninth inning, assuming that the score is not tied, um, you're going to be sitting there by yourself not getting a whole lot done. Um, <laughs> and so sleep, your body doesn't want to sleep at certain times. It doesn't want to sleep in. And so trying to catch up can make it very difficult if you try to sleep extra time the next day. A lot of my patients say, well, you know what? I'm just going to go to bed early um, and that way I'll catch up on my sleep that way. Mm -hmm. Again, you might see batting practice, but the game ain't starting until 8 o'clock. And so um, it's very difficult to make up for lost sleep. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, however, that people are forever lost in this humongous sleep debt. Uh, which a lot of people ask me about. Um, If you can stay consistent with your sleep, um, if you absolutely positively had to go to bed earlier, you know, because you just can't keep your eyes open, I would say don't go to bed more than 25, 30 minutes earlier and don't sleep in more than 25 or 30 minutes. And you'll slowly start to catch up on some of that missed sleep. But again, the sleep that you miss is very different than the sleep that you might be making up. Mm -hmm. Right. I just goes to show that we can't outsmart our body. Like our body is still... (laughs) Biologically wired it's still a to lot right. smarter than our social schedule. <laughs> right, exactly. Which kind of goes into chronotyping because we try to stick with this rules and regimens that everyone sets, but chronotyping really takes into account how your body wants to work. So it starts working with it instead of against it. So you kind of have this better cycle going, like this healthier cycle. So just talk briefly about chronotypes. I know that in your book, you're going to specifically talk about four, which would be a lion, a bear, a dolphin, and a wolf. So just, yeah, can you just briefly describe that and why it's important to know this, which I think is something so many people are just deficient in, is that self-awareness of really looking internally at their own bodies and 
and we're going to talk about this hopefully, but like knowing that it's greater than just health. Like you're talking sleep affects not only your health, but also your success. And, and yeah. you name 50 other things that chronotyping can help you with. So just briefly describe chronotyping and what those different categories are. Sure. So first of all, everybody out there actually already knows what a chronotype is. They just not, might not know the word. So if anybody out there has heard of an early bird or a night owl, those are actually chronotypes. And so all a chronotype is, is it's a, uh, it's a name for your own personal biological schedule for sleep. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to look at that, um, if you look in the literature, what you'll discover is at first, I only thought there, there were those two chronotypes. Um, and the way this whole book got started was kind of bizarre. So I'm an actively practicing sleep specialist. I've been in practice for about 16 years now. And my specialty is insomnia. And when I'm hanging out with my insomnia patients, uh, usually things are going pretty pretty close to schedule. I've got a certain level of techniques that I use with them. I try not to use pharmaceutical interventions, but unfortunately, 90% of my patients show up on some type of pharmaceutical and we try to wean them off of it as best we can and use only talk therapy and specialized scheduling, light and some supplementation in order to help them get them back on their schedule. The Mm -hmm. truth is we're actually quite successful with it. Um, Almost 80% of the time I get people sleeping normal again and almost 90% of the time I at least help with their sleep. But for some reason, I had a group of patients that came to me and I wasn't helping them. And it was kind of weird because I've been so successful so far. And so I really started to ask them a lot of questions. And they said, you know, Dr. Bruce, it's not that I have a hard time falling asleep. And it's not that I have a hard time staying asleep, which are classic insomnia type symptoms. But more to the point, they were saying, I sleep great. I just sleep at the wrong time. Mm. And I said, what do you mean you sleep at the wrong time? Kind of like how teenagers don't want to go to sleep until midnight, you know, or two o'clock in the morning and sleep until 12. And they were like, exactly. And I said, oh, okay. So let's take a look at this and let's see how prevalent this is in the literature. So it turns out that about 15% of people are actually documented as early birds and about 15% of people are documented as night owls. But that really only covers 30% of the population. Right. And so I was like, what's going on here? So really started to dig a lot deeper into the literature And what we discovered was is that there are people who are kind of in between, and then there are also people who are problem sleepers. And so one of the things I didn't like about the historic assessment tools that we've been using for years to see are you an early bird or a night owl is it didn't take these two other potential chronotypes into into play. So I created my own, and we started uh, testing it on people, and what we discovered was there are actually four different chronotypes. I'm not a big um, bird fan in terms of labeling because I'm a mammal and I wanted to use animals that were actually representative (laughs) of the the actual chronotypes themselves. So my early bird actually turns into a lion. And the reason I chose lions is because lions actually do wake up very early in the morning. Their first kill is usually very, very early, just at dawn. Um, and then they, they kind of seem to get lazier during the, towards the end of the day. And then, you know, once the sun is down, they're pretty much done for the day. Um, my in-between folks, I call them bears. Oh, and by the way, lions, from a, per, from a person or human characteristic standpoint, these are my leaders. These are the people that have a tendency to be my COOs of mm-hmm. a company. They're my managers. Um, but they're very interesting in the way that they think. They usually have to go from A to B to C to D. Like they're not interested in diverting um, anything. They, they have a plan. They're going to stick to it and they're going to get it done. Mm-hmm. My bears, which are my in-between people, are really a lot of fun. These are the people that you enjoy spending time with. They're kind of the 
life of the party, very outgoing, very optimistic people. Um, they're the people where you sit down at lunch next to a bear and they're going to tell you a funny story about what happened to them last night. Or <laughs> if you go out to happy hour with them, they're the one who's buying drinks at the bar. Like they're the, the kind of cool, fun people to hang out with. Then we start to look at the night owls and I chose a wolf because wolves are primarily nocturnal creatures. They hunt at night, um, they hunt in packs, and they're very individualized and kind of introverted group. They don't socialize with other animals the way, uh, the way some of the animals out there do. And this is actually very characteristic of my night owl or wolfish types of people. Now, just to reveal to everyone, I'm a wolf um, myself, and uh, so is my wife, and so are both of my kids, so I call us the wolf pack. Um, <laughs> Because we, we kind of all are there. I think my children will change as they grow out of their teenage years. But most teenagers actually are wolves and from a timing perspective. But from a human characteristic perspective, uh, we know that wolves are introverted. We know that um, wolves are super creative. These are the people who, for example, are the artists and the writers and the actors and the musicians of the world. Um, they might be a little shy meeting you at a party, but once they get to know you, you kind of can't shut them up. Right. Um, and they can be very fun, but you'll have some of your most in-depth, interesting conversations with, with some of the wolves that are out there. Um, they're also bigger risk takers than many of the other people out there as well. Um, and then the final category are dolphins. And dolphins really came about because of the patients that I have in my practice. I was coming across a type A personality. Not too dissimilar, by the way, from lions, but this was a type A personality that was kind of obsessive compulsive. And they found themselves not being able to complete tasks because they were so bogged down in the details. And that was kind of interesting to me. And I thought that dolphins represented them very, very well because most, what most people don't know is that uh, dolphins sleep unihemispherically, meaning that they sleep with half of their brain while the other half is awake and looking for predators. And I thought that was kind of a cool metaphor hmm, or representation right. yeah. for my insomnia patients who are never quite asleep. So when you have someone who has insomnia, do they fit into they, – they have their own chronotype, but yet they still have insomnia? Or are they just dolphins? Yeah. They're not dolphins, right? Well, I think, they're, I think they're dolphins with bad sleep habits. And so what I have a tendency to find is once I can kind of corral their crazy sleep, we usually get them into a, into a little bit of a better pattern. But the dolphins themselves really are kind of a unique chronotype unto themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and also, the other thing that's interesting is uh, we now know through some uh, recent genetic research that there is actually a gene that helps us understand sleep drive. It's called the PER3 gene. And the length of that gene determines how long or short your sleep drive is. And so dolphins um, are actually known to have very short sleep drives. Uh, and so they don't have a lot of oomph behind their ability to fall asleep. Um, and uh, that can actually cause them quite a bit of distress right. while they're constantly trying to get sleep because they tend to be so perfectionistic. They're like, but I need my eight hours. I need my eight hours. And I keep saying, you really don't. Uh -huh. Relax. Right. <laughs> you know, I promise we'll get you to a good spot where you're sleeping a lot better. And and that level of anxiety is one of the things that we work on in therapy. Right. That's embedded in us that we need that sleep. So when you talk about sleep drive, is that the same thing as a biological clock? Nope. Those are two different things. Okay. So biological clock is your chronorhythm. Sleep drive is a separate system. So believe it or not, there are two distinct systems in the brain that cause a state of unconscious sleep. One is a sleep drive, much like hunger, mm -hmm. right? So I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. I eat something and then that hunger dissipates. Mm -hmm. Your sleep drive is actually something that builds throughout the daytime. Um, oddly enough, we've been able to trace it to a very particular neurotransmitter called adenosine. 
And um, adenosine is a cellular byproduct. So um, once your cell eats up some glucose, something comes out of it. Part of what comes out of it is adenosine. And that flows through your blood and gets to your brain and hits these very particular adenosine receptor sites. And the more you have, the sleepier and sleepier you get. Oddly enough, if you look at the molecular structure of adenosine and you look at the molecular structure of caffeine, they're literally almost identical. They're off by one molecule. So caffeine actually fits nicely into that adenosine receptor site. And that's part of the reason that caffeine can keep you awake for so long is because it's actually blocking that sleepy feeling Mm. that adenosine would normally cause. The second system is your circadian system, right? And Mm -hmm. so believe it or not, there are over 100 circadian rhythms in your body. But this one in particular is quite interesting uh, when it comes to sleep. It actually mimics your core body temperature cycle. And so as your core body temperature rises and falls throughout a 24-hour period, hence your sleep, uh, that level of adenosine um, is, while it's still high, is not going to get affected until you're at the right core body temperature time in order to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So speaking of adenosine- it's a little complicated. Right, right. But it's, I mean, it's totally a different way of thinking of it. So like when we bring this into the nutritional realm, there's a lot of, um, there's oh, a lot yeah. of topic of debate, right? On how our food and our eating patterns affect our sleep. And, and one of the more recent recommendations that I've heard is, you know, to filter your carbs more towards the evening hours because it actually helps mm-hmm. your body adjust and your melatonin levels and your cortisol levels. Is that an accurate picture when it comes to sleep? It is. Um, we know because one of the things that happens is when you increase carbohydrates, you actually get an increase in serotonin. Mm-hmm. And serotonin is the calming hormone and it actually helps decrease your levels of cortisol. So, you know, when you when you talk to a lot of people out there who are like, no carbs, no carbs, um, I understand where they're coming from. But what I would say is there are appropriate carbs that actually eaten, you know, at either at dinner or as a snack right before bed can actually be quite helpful in letting you sleep. Right. So I kind of fall into the perspective and nutrition of I feel like when you eat is more important than what you eat. I mean, in some sense, right? Like you can always argue that. But when you know your specific chronotype, does that matter when you eat? It does. I actually have an entire section in the book where we describe when should you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. There was a fascinating study. Um, that was done looking at uh, metabolism in mice and weight gain in mice. And what they did was they gave the mice the exact same amount of food and the exact same food, but they restricted their eating time to either a 12-hour period or an 8-hour period, or they just let them free uh, free eat, right? Mm-hmm. So within a 24-hour period, they could eat, you know, and eat, but there was still the same amount of food as the other two groups. And what they discovered was is that the group that had no time limit on when they could eat gained a significant amount of weight and the group that ate in eight hours lost weight and the group that ate in 12 hours lost weight, but not as much as the group that only ate within an eight hour window. Right. I think it's so fascinating. And yet it's such an easy principle because it doesn't take into account like all the emotional and cultural things that we have with food. And it's just really like, I don't really care what you eat in that period, like just start there. So that's fascinating that it plays such a a vital role in that. And so just going back to the carbohydrate thing, again, we kind of, we flip from Mm -hmm. this low fat nation to this low carb nation, but I would agree that there's carbohydrates are needed in, in the right percentage. And so what does that look like to you and eating patterns and how that affects our sleep? Sure. So because carbs have a tendency to make us sleepy, you know, recommendations across chronotypes um, is if you're, you know, for breakfast, which you should have a, everybody should out there should be eating breakfast. Although for many of my wolf patients, they don't like to because Mm -hmm. they're not really awake and they're certainly not very hungry. Um, 
But uh, one of the first things is I say you want to have a high-protein, high-fat breakfast um, because that's energy for your brain um, that kicks your metabolism and gets it going. And it's, it's actually much easier for your, for your body um, in terms of some of the things that it's currently missing. Then for lunch, you're going to have a smaller lunch, but again, still having a good bit of protein now starting to infuse, um, some roughage and carbohydrates in there. So maybe it's a, it's a grilled chicken salad with avocado or something like that. And then for dinner, it should actually be one of the smaller meals Mm -hmm. of the day, but this is where you should actually have some carbohydrates. Um, again, if you have it in enough time before you're going to sleep, you'll burn off at least some of the carbohydrates just in your daily moving around. Um, but also some of those carbohydrates can actually be helpful because of that spike in serotonin to help relax you before bed. Right. So when you talk about insomnia patients or people who are struggling to sleep, does their, does their eating patterns Mm -hmm. need to change, um, based off of that? I think so. Yeah. Like how? Well, it's, it's kind of funny because for a lot of my insomnia patients, they're like caffeine cuckoo. Mm-hmm. Um, because they sleep so poorly at night, they end up drinking a lot of caffeine during the day. Most people don't know that caffeine has a half-life of between six and eight hours, which means even though you might fall asleep while caffeine is on board, you're not going to get into the deeper stages of sleep. And so one of the things I'm recommending for a lot of my dolphins is that we do some level of caffeine fading where we slowly never go cold turkey on caffeine, everyone. <laughs> but uh, trust me, I had a patient end up in the ER um, oh, wow. because they stopped drinking caffeine. They were drinking almost two pots of coffee a day. And they said, oh, well, you told me to slow down on my caffeine. So I figured I'd just stop and tough it out. And you know, lo and behold, they ended up in the ER. So it's not you know, it's not a drug to play around with, although, you know, it's widely available. Um, I, I ask people to just kind of slow down that level of caffeine because it can have some pretty significant effects. Mm-hmm. On all of their hormones, would you say that as well? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's no nutritional value in caffeine whatsoever. There's really no reason to have it in our diet at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't get me wrong. I have a cup of coffee every once in a while. I'd say I probably have a cup of coffee probably three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's not really part of my early morning routine. And that, and one of the reasons, um, has to do with chronotypes. And so, um, when you actually do wake up, your body is waking up because of an increase in cortisol and an increase in adrenaline. And so that's part of the two things that help wake you up. Well, if you take a look at those two hormones combined, they're about seven to 10 times more powerful than caffeine. Mm. So, All you're doing by adding caffeine as the first thing that you're drinking during the day is just getting all of those side effects because, quite frankly, you've already got plenty of stimulation in your system and you want to, you know, make sure that that is not something that where you're overstimulating yourself because that's where where we have a tendency to see the large number of side effects. Mm -hmm. The other thing I tell people all the time is, look, if you're going to, if you want to use caffeine to help supplement your energy level, okay, fine, but do it when it's smart. Do it when your cortisol level has actually begun to decrease because then if you do it as as that level has decreased, you can actually catch yourself on the upswing and it can be a lot more effective. Maybe between 90 and 120 minutes after you wake up is probably one of the best times to be drinking caffeine. So if you're getting up at 6.30 you know, and you want to have a cup of coffee, have it at 8.30. Mm-hmm. What you'll find is it's actually much more beneficial for you. Then right away. So what do you find for people right who are having a difficult time waking up and that's usually when they grab that coffee like are there other tips to help someone just wake up or is waking up at the same time just enough 
So one of the things, so you're correct. One of the things that is very helpful is by waking up at the same time Mm -hmm. because your brain knows when it's supposed to wake up. However, most people also don't know, but uh, we call melatonin the vampire hormone because it has a tendency to only come out in darkness. And what's great about that is we can use light to stop it. So one of the very first things that I have my patients do is if the alarm goes off, Um, and you've already hit snooze once and you know you just got to get out of bed, swing your feet over the edge of the bed and sit there and take three deep abdominal breaths. Kind of get your heart rate back up going because when you're lying down in a recumbent or supine position, your heart rate slows down because it doesn't have to pump blood against gravity. So once you sit up and take a couple of, couple, three good deep breaths, you kind of get your heart beat moving again. So that's good. Number two is reach over to your nightstand and you should have a glass of water sitting there because I want you to drink a full eight to 12 ounces of water every morning when you wake up. Um, that most people don't know, but as you are breathing at night, you actually breathe out almost a full liter of water. And so you actually wake up dehydrated. So I want people to go and make sure that they're getting enough um, hydration and then go over and stand next to the window and get direct sunlight. There's nothing better for waking you up than actually doing getting direct sunlight early in the morning because it stops that melatonin faucet and it really helps you wake up in the in the a.m. Right. Yeah. Those are great tips. And just kind of going along with that. So someone who does suffer from insomnia, can you give them any tips to maybe help them sleep deeper tonight? I mean, we've talked about, you know, the how to wake up, but how about falling asleep? Like, are there any good tips for that nighttime pattern? So the number one thing that, well, there's two things really. Um, The number one thing that my insomniacs do that I think hurts their sleep is they get in bed too early. Um, And this sounds super counterintuitive, but it's very, very true. Mm -hmm. Most of my insomniacs say, oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted. I didn't sleep so well last night. If I just get in bed maybe a couple hours early, maybe I'll fall asleep and be able to catch up on my sleep. Well, remember our baseball game. All you're going to be doing is getting batting practice and just kind of getting (laughs) pissed, right? Right. Because you're going to look over the clock and then you're instantly going to do the mental math and say, oh my gosh, I've been lying in bed for two hours. I haven't fallen asleep yet. Okay, I'm going to really try hard to sleep. And that just causes autonomic arousal, meaning um, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, and it's almost impossible to fall asleep. Go to bed later than you normally would. Um, I'm telling a lot of my insomniacs, and I have to look at their sleep diary to really dial it in and figure it out exactly mm-hmm. what time for them to go to bed. But for many of them, I'm telling them, look, I don't want you in bed until 11, 30, 12 o'clock. I'm having them get out of bed around 6.30, um, taking no naps during the day. It, people with insomnia should never, ever nap. Um, it's, it's very counterintuitive to the sleep process for them. Uh, my other chronotypes can definitely nap, but my dolphins should never, ever nap. Um, and then again, going to bed later, you begin to use your sleep deprivation to your advantage. And so mm-hmm. as that level of sleep deprivation builds up your body and you keep that schedule super consistent, your body will slowly over time really get there. Right. So you're, you're really essentially kind of pushing for them to get that quality of sleep, even if it seems less to them. Exactly. So what about it? sleep apnea? I feel like sleep apnea is on the rise. Maybe it's just becoming more, I'm just more aware of it or it's becoming a wider topic. But yeah, what do you know about sleep apnea? Well, it's kind of interesting that you say it's on the rise and that you called it a wider topic because I think those are, those are very accurate. So it's on the rise because the level of obesity in this country is on mm-hmm. the rise. And it's a wider topic because wider people have a tendency to have them. And I'm not trying to make fun of people who are heavy or who need to lose weight. Um, but 
here's some interesting facts is that if you look at the rate of sleep apnea and you look at the rate of obesity, they are almost identical mm. when you look at epidemiologic studies. Mm -hmm. And so as a nation, as we're getting heavier and heavier, what ends up happening is um, fat begins to deposit around our necks, more so in men than women. Um, it's very interesting. Men have a fat pad that's right in the middle of their throat. And as they gain weight, that pad expands, making their airway more and more narrow. All sleep apnea is, is a collapsing of the airway, whether it's because there's um, fat around the air, airway that's pushing it down or other tissue that's there, like let's say tonsils and adenoids, or maybe your jaw is displaced back a little bit, but it, there's something anatomical going on. And while you may not have had apnea when you were younger, as you get older and your musculature begins to um, be less firm, um, then guess what? It starts to collapse and then you've got sleep apnea. Um, we're starting to see more and more about it because we're also starting to see more of the health consequences associated with it. Right. Um, if, if you look at diabetes, which I personally think is going to crush the entire healthcare system at some point in time, um, there's a very high association between people with diabetes and people with sleep apnea. So we're also starting to hear about it a lot from that end as well. Right, right. Yeah, it's so interesting. Obviously, there's a lot that people can do because if they are getting sleep apnea because of the size of their neck, then losing weight would help. Can you reverse sleep sure. apnea once you get it? Yes, you can, um, but it's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. um, and there are actually a lot of treatments, but you know, if you are a person out there who finds yourself sleepy during the day, if you snore, uh, if anybody's ever seen you stop breathing in your sleep, if you uh, wake up in a fog, um, you have memory issues, concentration problems, things like that, then you're checking off a lot of the symptoms of sleep apnea. And I would ask your doctor, hey, you know, do you know a sleep specialist that I could talk to? Because all of the sleep specialists out there are, are out there primarily to treat apnea. They also treat narcolepsy and limb movements and in some cases insomnia. But the majority of doctors out there who are sleep specialists are really treating apnea. And that's when you go in and have a sleep study mm -hmm. or a home-based sleep study. Um, and then it's identified and treated. There, uh, there are a lot of different treatments now. Um, one of them is definitely weight loss and that can certainly help. Um, but it's hard to lose weight when you're already so sleep deprived. So what I'm often turning to my patients and doing is saying, look, let's do a trial of something called a CPAP machine mm -hmm. that stands for continuous positive airway pressure. So think about a hairdryer, um, with a hose on the end of it and it blows cool, moist air, um, to a mask on your nose, which then goes down to your throat and that area that's collapsed, it just ever so slightly opens it up, puts air into your lungs, you breathe better, you sleep better and all is good. Then you make up for some of that sleep debt and you're starting to feel better. Then you can start to exercise and diet because before that you're so sleep deprived, you're going to have a really tough time either doing any exercise or watching what you eat. Right, right. Fascinating. So I just went to the dentist and the pediatric dentist had just gotten back from a sleep mm -hmm. apnea thing. And my girls have all been tongue tied. And he said that that can greatly affect their chances of getting sleep apnea. So there's some data to look at that, especially in pediatrics. There's another area that's really interesting for treatment besides CPAP, and that's uh, those are called a mandibular advancement device or an oral appliance. So these are devices that either keep the tongue in one spot or slowly move the jaw forward by a millimeter or two, which can also open up the airway. So we see a lot of dentists who are getting involved in sleep apnea treatment. Mm -hmm. um, the thing to be a little leery of is you just don't want to go to a dentist who took a weekend course in sleep apnea. Right. Um, <laughs> 
you know, because right. they're out there. Um, there actually is a board certification in dental sleep medicine. Um, and so I usually recommend my patients go to somebody who's had that board certification because mm-hmm. that can be very helpful. And there's also surgeries. Um, now, surgery is kind of an extreme for some people, but some people, they've got such anatomical problems that weight loss isn't going to change them. So as an example, if they've got tonsils that are almost touching, um, then you know what? If you got rid of the tonsils, we'd probably have a much better situation on our hands. Right. So, you know, looking at those types of situations can actually also work. And there's new stuff coming out all the time. Um, you know, um, they're now making um, electrical stimulation to the tongue base where um, you can actually have an indwelling stimulator that's placed underneath the clavicle. And the wires go up into the tongue, and then all of a sudden, every time your tongue falls to the back of your throat, boom, it, it pushes it back forward. So we're starting to see some pretty interesting advances into the wonderful world of treatment of sleep apnea. Right now, the gold standard really is CPAP, um, but I don't think it's going to stay there very long. Right, right. Interesting. So, I mean, obviously, when we talk about Mm -hmm. insomnia as well or just sleeping patterns, obviously, sleeping issues is the number one prescribed medicine. And so you talked about supplements, and I've researched some supplements as it relates to sleep. Do you have any Mm -hmm. like general supplements that you found to be beneficial? I have actually. Um, magnesium turns out to be one of the things. So many people are magnesium mm-hmm. deficient um, because they don't eat enough um, leafy greens, and you know there's only so much kale, right, that you right. can eat. <laughs> um, and um, and so we know that many, many, many people out there are magnesium deficient. We also know that magnesium is very calming for people, especially at night. Um, and so a lot of times I'm having my patients do magnesium supplementation because that can actually be quite helpful. And that's something that's easy that people can do across the board and not worry too much. Um, in the morning times, I'm having a lot of my patients taking vitamin D. We now know that there is an epidemic of, uh, of vitamin D deficiencies that are going that's going on out there and so one or two thousand IU uh, those are international units of vitamin D can be quite helpful in helping promote better energy during the daytime um, we also know that the B vitamins uh, are very good for sleep but some people do get energy when they take B vitamins so if you're one of those energy B people take your B's in the morning if you're not then you can take some B's at night and that can actually be quite helpful people constantly ask me about melatonin so I figured right. I might as well just address it um, So there's pros and cons with melatonin. So melatonin works very well for jet lag. It works very well for shift workers. Um, And even in some of my wolf patients, I might recommend it because if they just have to get up at 7.30 um, and their brain doesn't want to get up until 9, melatonin can be something that can help with that. But generally speaking, melatonin is not regulated by the FDA. Mm -hmm. So you have to be a little bit careful. You have to know the source from which you're getting that melatonin. And I've investigated a couple of different sources out there to try to find ones that I think uh, work really well. Um, I like melatonin that's created by a company called USANA. Um, And then uh, the next thing that people don't know is that melatonin is actually sold 95% of the time in an overdosage format. Mm. So most of the melatonin out there is sold in three, five, and 10 milligram dosages when the data out of MIT would suggest that all you really need is between a half and one milligram. I don't know what happens when you take an overdosage of melatonin for an extended period of time. Um, but I'm not convinced that it's a great idea. Um, one of the reasons that melatonin supplementation makes sense with my older patients is because we know that right around age 50, 55 is when we start to see a melatonin depletion in the system anyway. 
So it might not be a bad idea for some of my older patients um, who are in that age range to start uh, to consider melatonin supplementation as well. One of the caveats, though, is you should never, ever, ever give melatonin to children. Um, a, another really kind of scary statistic is at high dosages, melatonin is actually a contraceptive. Mm. Um, and so I can't think of anything worse for a young female developing body than to introduce a contraceptive before she's completely developed. So I can I can guarantee you that my daughter will never take melatonin. Right. I mean, it's a hormone. And so do you do you ever yeah. feel like it can create dependent? So like if you start taking melatonin, does your body naturally kind of decline in producing it? I've always wondered that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any data to prove it, but I personally think that there is a possibility of that. But I, I can't prove it with any data, so it's hard for me to say yes or no. Right. But what I can tell you is, is that my personal hypothesis would be yes. Right. So the other supplements would be better recommendations. Just real quick, magnesium. There's a lot of different forms. What form yes. of magnesium do you find to be most beneficial for your body? You know... It's so weird because I've got I, – I, it's hard for me to make a general recommendation mm -hmm. because I've had some patients who didn't do well with like a chelated form and one patient who needed magnesium sulfate. So I, what I'm oftentimes telling people to do is to try a couple of different kinds and see what works best for them. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I had better guidelines for you on that, but unfortunately no, I just don't. No, that's fine. I mean I think it's, it's, it's an important thing to note is that there's not a one-size-fits-all and that people just need to be more right. self-aware. <laughs> if we could teach self-awareness and understanding their body and really how they feel, I think that um, that would be really beneficial in itself. So – I think it's a great answer. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So just a yeah. few more quick questions before we wrap it up. I could talk to you all sure. day about this because I feel like sleep <laughs> is just like that foundation where everything is kind of built on. And we really, like you said, some people who have insomnia, they don't feel like exercising and they don't feel like eating well because they're just tired all the time. And so it really is a critical step in just overall health. But I want to ask you, can you change your chronotype? Great question. So chronotypes are genetically predetermined. Um, you can fudge it a little bit by like, so let's just say that no matter what I say about your chronotype, you still have to wake up at 630 in the morning because your boss wants you there by right. 730. Um, you can use actually melatonin and light therapy. So using a light box, um, and these are commercially available. You can find them on Amazon. Uh, the one that I use with a lot of my patients is called the Go Light, G-O-L-I-T-E. Um, it's really quite good. And you don't have to like stare at it or anything. You can just have it on while you're eating breakfast and it will definitely help turn off that melatonin faucet. Um, you can change your chronotype that way, um, but it's you're gonna it's something that you would have to consistently change every single day because you're really fighting your genetics. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with your theme of being self-aware, I think it's actually better to go with the flow of your genetics than to try to fight them. Right. So, one of the things that I do with a lot of my patients who are kind of chronotype challenged is I say well, why don't we start educating people in your world and see if they can come around? And so why don't you have your boss call me or why don't you have your boss read my book? And you might be surprised because, number one, they may have a chronotype <laughs> issue as well. Um, but number two, if they were to allow you to come in a little bit later, you might be incredibly more productive and that's good for business. Um, you know, it's kind of funny, right. but now I'm starting to get requests from companies where they say, can you chronotype my whole company? And then can you help us schedule times when we should have certain types of meetings, like creative meetings at night and brainstorming meetings at certain times and analytic or management meetings during other times so that we can get more done mm -hmm. because the, the most inefficient use of time sometimes at work is a meeting and it would be just be 
great if you have right chronotypes in the right room at the right time. And so sometimes just educating your employer or other family members can actually be really worthwhile. A a perfect Mm -hmm. example, one of the sections in the book is when is the best time to have sex? Mm-hmm. So data on this is actually very interesting. 72% of the time when we're having sex, it's merely out of convenience. So it's the kids are asleep. No, there's no work going on. We're lying in bed. We don't have a whole lot of clothes on. Are you interested? Yeah. Are you interested? Yeah. Okay, let's go. As opposed to a desire, a true desire. And we also know that your hormones late at night mm-hmm. are very different than what you actually want to have for sexual activity, right? So you want your testosterone, your estrogen, your progesterone, and your adrenaline to be high, and you want your melatonin to be low prior to sexual activity. Well, at 11 o'clock at night, guess what? Those are the opposite. <laughs> your melatonin right. is high, your testosterone is low, progesterone, estrogen, all low. So it doesn't really work very well. So I actually created a matrix in the book to show people when is the best time to have sex, even if you're married to somebody or partnered with somebody that has a different chronotype. Mm. Um, and so I actually find times in the evening, which are actually a lot earlier in the evening than most people might guess, and then times in the morning, so a Saturday or Sunday morning, uh, might actually be kind of a fun way to do it as well. Right. And something so many people don't think about is just everyday things from, you know, your personal life to your business life. So much of it can depend on how successful you are in all those areas just on when you do them. Again, that win factor in your life makes a huge difference. And it's so overlooked. Thank you. Yeah, so fascinating. You go That's into, why I wrote the book. Right. You go into <laughs> over 50 of them in the book, correct? Yep. Yeah. I do. I, I cannot I wait mean, to get my hands on that book and, and read it. So I think that stuff is incredibly fascinating. So one last question. What are one or two things you think everyone should be doing to get a better night's sleep? Sure. So I can give you a quick five-step process that everybody can do to help them get better sleep. So number one, pick a bedtime and a wake-up time and stick to it. Be super consistent with one schedule. Number two, stop caffeine by about 2 p.m. Um, Again, because of the half-life of caffeine and we know that it keeps you out of the deeper stages of sleep, 2 p.m. is a great time to slow down or stop your caffeine pretty dramatically. Um, Step number three is to stop alcohol about three hours before bed. Notice I didn't say you can't have a glass of wine or cocktail with dinner. Right. You know, I I like my beer with dinner. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But at the end of the day, while alcohol can make you feel sleepy, there's a big difference between going to sleep and passing out. Um, And uh, we want people to understand that difference. Also, alcohol keeps you out of the deeper stages of sleep. So, again, not great for your sleep, but it takes the human body one hour per alcoholic beverage to digest it. So if you have two glasses of wine and you finish dinner by eight and then you don't have lights out until 10, you're probably okay. Um, Number four is exercise. There is no better way to improve the quality of your sleep other than to keep a schedule than to exercise uh, if you can daily. And I'm not talking about running a marathon. I'm talking about 20 minutes of cardiovascular exercise. And it doesn't have to be something crazy. It can just be taking your dog for a walk. But that consistency and that exercise is going to improve your sleep. And then the last one is one we already mentioned, which is um, get 15 minutes of sunshine every morning, you know, right Mm -hmm. after you wake up go outside. Preferably put on a robe or some pajamas, but go outside. That was a joke. (laughs) Go outside and get some sunlight because it will definitely help turn off that melatonin faucet. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such, this is what I love about health is it's such simple things. It's just changing the status quo. And that's what's awesome about it. So tell them more where they can find out about you and your new book coming out. 
Sure. So um, if you're looking for more information about me, you can go to thepowerofwhen.com. Um, uh, and if you want to learn more about the book, you can go to the power of when quiz and you can take the quiz and learn your chronotype for free. It doesn't cost a dime. You'll learn a whole lot about who you are, um, your chronotype, a little bit more information that could be quite helpful to you. Um, if you're looking for just straight up sleep types of information, you can go to my main website, which is thesleepdoctor.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll be sure and link all that in the show notes, as well as all the resources we talked about. I really, really, really appreciate having you on. And I can't wait to get the book in my hand. So thank you Thanks, again. Thanks, Alexa. Have fun. Yeah. Take thank, care. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's show. But I don't know about you, but I'm feeling pretty pumped up about sleep. It's just a new and different way of looking at it. And I think there is power in just breaking down the walls we've built that tell us exactly what we should be doing and instead start listening and fully understanding our own bodies, knowing it's unique. Lasting change never has nor ever will come from strict rules, principles, and regulations. Sure, there are great suggestions, but the only way that we can make those suggestions have lasting impact is if we truly know and understand our own bodies. To have a deep self-awareness and a full belief that our body knows far better than we do. The answer may just lie in stopping the fight, the fight between you and your body, to end that and fully believe that your body wants health, to stop fighting sleep and ultimately start working and accepting the body you've been given through the strengths and the weaknesses or however you perceive it and start working in the natural rhythm and flow of your internal signals. It's pretty amazing to think about and take it all in. But knowing that, like Dr. Bruce mentioned, it can change everything. You're going to want to make sure and grab a copy of his newest book, The Power of Win. It could be the best health book you've read yet, and one that will definitely unlock many doors to fully becoming self-aware. Also, don't forget the first step in better sleep is knowing your chronotype. Dr. Bruce has put together an awesome quiz that quickly tells you what your chronotype is and how you can embrace that. I know I'm a lion, early to bed, early to wake, with a good eight hours of sleep per night. But in knowing this, I can be more effective when I do work and I'm trying to be creative or even when I should have a deep, meaningful talk or arguments with my husband and children. So to find out your chronotype, head on over to thepowerofwinquiz.com and take yours today. After you take the quiz, I want to know what you found out. What chronotype are you and was it different than what you expected? Or how do you see changes in your life to work around how you've been wired? Do you think change can easily be made off your findings? Send me back an email or leave a comment on the show notes, Instagram, or Twitter, and I can't wait to find out what you learned. Again, you can find out more about Dr. Bruce at thesleepdoc.com or thepowerofwin.com. All of the resources from today's show, along with Dr. Bruce's supplement recommendations, can be found in the show notes at simplerootswellness.com slash 030. Thanks again so much for tuning in. And while you're checking out the show notes, make sure you sign up for my daily inspiration, exclusive content, and weekly meal plans. There's power and accountability and being a part of like-minded people on a mission to better health and a happier life. I'd be honored for you to be a part of that where we deepen our knowledge and create action to help us reach our goals. There's no cost to being involved. It just helps us to have a deeper relationship, creating more action-based change. Again, to sign up, head on over to my site, simplerootswellness.com. Well, we made it. My final words of encouragement to you today is to stop putting down your body. 
to end the thoughts that it is broken and fully believe and trust so that you can make the appropriate changes. Just start working with your body instead of against it. I can promise there is power when we do that. So this week, find out your chronotype and start working with it. Next week, we're gonna dive into another topic that's slightly controversial, and that's why you shouldn't drink water. I know, right? We've been told all along eight eight ounce glasses of water, but there's reality and reasons behind why water alone is not hydrating and what we should do to fully hydrate our body. So I hope you tune in next week, but in the meantime, have a great week and don't forget to let me know your chronotype.